There's a handout on the music stand. And also, if you have your notes from last week, we'll be finishing up the outline and the purpose statement that I'd like to draw your attention to once again on First and Second Kings. I recommend you have a little folder that you keep all of these handouts in that you bring with you, and that way if we're continuing from one week to the next, you've got the handout with you and got your notes and you're ready to pick up where we left off. But if you have your Bible with you, I want you to open up to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Let's back up a little bit as we get into God's Word this morning. As we've been going through the big story of the Bible, we've recognized properly that the big story of the Bible falls out of, it flows from the covenants, the major covenants of Scripture. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant have been the ones that have really moved the action forward as God makes promises and then keeps those promises to the nation of Israel. The Old Testament is the story of God's faithfulness to his covenant people of Israel and Israel's unfaithfulness to their covenant God. That's really the big picture. And despite their unfaithfulness, God remains faithful to his promises. Now, when we come back to Deuteronomy, we have a sermon from, well, a series of sermons, although there's one really large one in there as well, sermons from Moses regarding all of the history that Israel has experienced during his ministry among them, the exodus, the time at Mount Sinai, the wanderings in the wilderness, and the beginning of the conquest of the promised land. And Deuteronomy basically summarizes all of the lessons that Israel should have learned from the Pentateuch. And it's a covenant sermon that is there at the end of Moses' life, at the end of the Pentateuch, that really gives us the overview, the big picture of what God has been doing. And it sets the stage then for everything that comes after the book of Deuteronomy and the historical books of your Old Testament. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. All of that's flowing out of what God told the people in the book of Deuteronomy as it all connects together. You want to see the Old Testament as many books that are together forming one epic drama, and that's all because of the inspiration of Scripture, that it has one author, many human authors, but one divine author who's tying it all together. So in Deuteronomy 28, I want to draw your attention here, as we're studying the book of Kings, back to the covenant curses that are found in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Because the story of the fall of the kingdom of Israel, as we'll see especially in 2 Kings, is God being faithful to his promises to the people of Israel as to what would happen, what he would do, if they broke his covenant. So the book of Kings is previewed in the book of Deuteronomy here in chapter 28. That is the fall of the kingdom because of their disobedience. Take a look at Deuteronomy 28 verse 15. Now the first 14 verses of Deuteronomy 28 cover the blessings that God will bring upon the people for obedience. And they have limited obedience during their time from Moses to the time of the destruction of the kingdoms. So they receive some of these blessings as promised. But the larger part of this book of blessings and curses falls in the curse side. As you see, it picks up there in verse 15, and then it's a long chapter full of the curses of the covenant after that. And in verse 15, it starts off this way. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So there's a promise from God, and that promise from God is fulfilled in the book of Kings. The people are not faithful 
to keep the commandments of God in the book of Judges. They did pretty well in Joshua. In the book of Judges, they fail. And so therefore, many of these curses come upon them during the period of the Judges. And yet God redeems them and saves them from many of these curses during that time period. And then God gives them the Davidic covenant as a further covenant of promise, further blessings upon them that they haven't earned, that they haven't deserved because they've been unfaithful to the previous covenants. But God continues to move forward with them. And then we see that the sons of the Davidic covenant also fail to follow the Lord and keep his commandments. And so the curses of the covenant fall upon the people of Israel in fuller measure as God has given them more grace and more opportunities and yet they still continue to disobey his commandments and his statutes that Moses commanded. So the curses do overtake them. And I want to focus on a few of the verses here and not read the whole chapter. Look at verse 24. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Now, where does that happen in the book of Kings? Whose lifetime? Right. So Elijah prays that there will be no rain. And there's no rain for how long? Three years. Yeah. (laughs) So verse 24 is fulfilled in the ministry of Elijah. Although there would be other times of drought as well. But this is one that is really highlighted in the book of Kings with Elijah's drought. You come down to verses 36 and 37, and it says there, the Lord will bring you and your king. So there's a preview of the kingdom. They didn't have a king yet, but Moses is a prophet, and he's speaking about when God is going to give them a, a human king. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. So there the captivity of Israel and her king in a foreign land is predicted as the curse of the covenant because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and were not careful to do all of his commandments. Come down also to verses 45 to 52. We'll read this paragraph All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring, your seed, as a key word, forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave your grain wine or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And it goes on and goes into some of the grisly details of the siege against Jerusalem and other fortified cities. Take seriously the sin of idolatry. And you see verse 64 then, we'll read two verses here towards the end, verses 64 and 65. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes, and a languishing soul. And it goes on with a a sad conclusion there. So those are the curses of the covenant given to the people of Israel at the very beginning of their inception as a nation. As they were getting ready to go into the land of promise, God knew what they were going to do. He knew they were not going to be faithful, and that's why he was able to give such specific details on what the punishment was going to be and why he spent more time talking about the curses of the covenant than the blessings of the covenant, because people are sinners. 
People are unfaithful. And that is demonstrated powerfully in the history of the Old Testament. So come back then to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 9. So Judges, Samuel, Kings, this is a Deuteronomic history. That is, the prophetic character that we see in the book of Deuteronomy is exactly the perspective that we have the history of Israel written from. So the later prophets who wrote, well, they're called the earlier prophets, but they're later than Moses. The, Mo- the prophets who came after Moses wrote from the same spirit as Moses, and so they have the same perspective as Moses on the people of Israel and their history. And you see that you have many books, many different authors over centuries, but one divine author who's tying it all together through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All right. So 1 Kings chapter 9, I want to come back to this. We've looked at it each of the last two weeks. But this is where the Lord appears to Solomon and warns him. And it says this after Solomon's dedication of the temple and Solomon's prayer in chapter 8. God comes and appears to him a second time, as it says in verse 2. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, If you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, does that sound familiar? Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. There's the blessing. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But, here's the curse, If you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. So you see? That's why I read Deuteronomy. Now remind ourselves here in 1 Kings, where God, who spoke to the people of Israel through Moses, now speaking to the people of Israel here as their representative, Solomon, their king, and tells the king of Israel, basically, nothing has changed. Yes, now Israel has a king, but now the king is responsible for leading the people, shepherding the people to be faithful to the covenant. Faithfulness to the covenant is still the standard for the people of Israel. You worship the Lord, you'll be blessed. You worship idols, you'll be cursed. And now we find Solomon failing at that at the end of his reign. We find all of the northern kings failing at that. We find many of the southern kings, most of the southern kings failing to do that. And that's why, therefore, these curses that God gave in Deuteronomy, he reiterates here in 1 Kings chapter 8, they fall upon the people in the book of 2 Kings. Now, also notice the focus on the king that we had in Deuteronomy, and the king here in chapter 9, and then also the house of the Lord. That was something that wasn't mentioned back in Deuteronomy, but is a big theme here in the book of Kings, that the book of Kings is really the rise and fall of the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem. David built Jerusalem, but Solomon is the one who built the house, and so it starts off with Solomon and the building of the house, and it ends with the destruction of the house. And so the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, is the rise of the house of God and the fall of the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem. That's the story. Remember, it's one book, and that's what ties the beginning and the end together. All right, so that is a good review of the, the purpose of the book of Kings. You look on your handout if you have it from last week. The purpose of the book of Kings, I'll read it for us. The mediatorial kingdom, that is the kingdom of Israel that now has a human king as the mediator between the divine king and the people. The mediatorial kingdom, including David's house, failed to be faithful to the covenant with the result that the kingdoms were divided and then exiled from the land in fulfillment of God's prophetic word and covenant curses. So, why did this happen? Because God keeps his word. And he told them, if you do this, this is what I'm going to do. And God did what he said he was going to do. So, 
the structure for the book. That's one thing that we've talked some about, but I don't know. Uh, it's there at the end of your outlines. So in 1 Kings, you've got the United Kingdom and the Divided Kingdom. And so that forms the outline, the first 11 chapters, United Kingdom, second 11 chapters, the Divided Kingdom. And those are the first two parts of the book of Kings. But remember, it's one book. So 2 Kings continues the same outline. And the book of 2 Kings is the kingdom falls. So the kingdom united, first 11 chapters, divided, the second 11 chapters, and then the next 25 chapters are the fall of the kingdom, starting with the northern kingdom, followed by the southern kingdom. That's your outline for the book. United, divided, falling. That tells you the three parts of this one large book. All right, so just while I'm thinking about it, next week I'm going to be gone. So we're not going to be continuing our study of the survey of the Old Testament. So you'll have another week to catch up on reading or get ahead on your reading. And Jerry McNeese is going to be teaching Sunday school for the adults next week. And he's got something special planned for that. So in two weeks, if you want to start reading ahead from where we're going, I told you we're probably not going to follow the order of the books in our English Bibles, but instead we're going to follow more of the order of the books in the Hebrew Bible. And that's not to say that that was the correct order and our order is wrong. I don't want you to think that. But there are benefits of looking at the Bible according to the Hebrew order. And since you're not familiar with that order, I want you to get familiar with that so you can get that benefit of looking at the Bible that way. So... When you look at the Old Testament, you've got the first part is the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and then you've got the former prophets, that's where we are, the former prophets are Joshua through Kings. There's four books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, the former prophets. And then you've got the latter prophets, who are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. And so that's the order of the canon in the Jewish Bible. If you go, and go to a Jewish synagogue today and you open up their Old Testament, which they don't call the Old Testament, obviously, they call the Tanakh, then it's going to be in that order. The Torah, the first five books, then the Nevi'im, the prophets, the former prophets and the latter prophets, and then the writings. And the writings are everything else besides those 13 books that I just mentioned. So the latter prophets start with the book of Isaiah. So in the Hebrew Bible, after 2 Kings, you've got the book of Isaiah. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go from 2 Kings to Isaiah. So you can start reading in Isaiah if you want to keep up with your Old Testament reading here the next couple of weeks. And Isaiah is a big book, 66 chapters. I recommend you get a start on it. And it's one of the best books in all the Bible. It might be my favorite book of the Bible. So I'm really excited about getting to Isaiah. That might have also affected my decision on going to Isaiah next. But before we finish up today here with Kings, we've looked at the major themes, we've looked at the purpose, we've looked at the structure, we've looked at the author and and all of that, but we want to look then at the handout that's on the music stand, that is, what are our difficulties with the book of Kings? And we'll do that in just a moment. I told you we were going to get back to this, so let's go ahead and do this, because I've been wanting to do this for a while, and I think we've got time this morning. So... I want to review with you the course goals for why we're going through this and what I hope you'll know at the end of this Old Testament survey. And number one is I want you to be able to look at the Bible according to each book, that you don't just know verses of the Bible, but you know the books of the Bible, that you know what the purpose of each book of the Old Testament is, and you know what the message of each book of the Old Testament is. And so that's why I've given you the handout. That's why on each handout it's got the purpose of the book in a short statement so that you can go back and look at your notes and review that so that you get a really good understanding of what the point of each book of the Bible is. There's 39 books in your Old Testament. And if you can learn what each one of those books is for, then you've got a good, large picture understanding of the Old Testament. God gave us books. He didn't give us verses. He gave us books. And we should know those books. So we want you to be able to articulate the purpose and message of each book of the Old Testament. That's something every pastor should be able to do. But there's no reason why you should not be able to do it as well, because we are a people of the book. And the pastor's job is not just to know the scriptures, but to teach the scriptures, because the scriptures aren't for me, they're for you, they're for us. And so something we do together. Uh, Here we are in seminary together. All right, so then you want to be familiar with the major events and people 
of the Old Testament. Some people cover more than one book, but most people are confined to one book. And if you understand the events and the people, that really helps you to understand the book because the book is made up of the events and the people. That's, that's where we go. And then you want to be able to communicate the big picture of the Old Testament and relate the parts to the whole. So if you've done one and two, then number three should come pretty naturally. If you understand the message and purpose of each book, then the big picture becomes clear and you can relate the parts to the whole. And then number four, we want to be able to discuss the major theological themes of the Old Testament. So this is going beyond the individual books to showing the big picture, the major theological themes. So what is tying together the books of Moses, Deuteronomy, with the book of Kings like we just did? You know, there's a major theological theme that is connecting all these books together. We want you to be able to discuss that and share that with your family, with your friends, Bible study groups, and even strangers. Be able to to talk with them about what the Bible is really all about. And then number five, we want you to be able to explain the significance of the Old Testament or its parts for a contemporary believer. So all this ancient history, well, what does that have to do with us? So that's an important part, that we, we take this knowledge of what God was doing then and be able to relate it to how that's important for you and I today. And then number six, we want you to be able to address the foundational significance of the Old Testament for understanding the New Testament. And you see how these are related, that a contemporary believer is a New Testament believer. And so the significance of the Old Testament for us is how it is this foundation for the New Testament. So that is also a goal, and that's why we're bringing in prophecies about Jesus Christ and showing how all of this big story of the Bible ultimately leads us to understanding Jesus as the son of David, the king of Israel, who has come to save his people from their sins, from their idolatry, from their unfaithfulness. And that's the New Testament right there in relation to the Old Testament. So pretty cool, the the course goals, and I think it's good to keep those in mind. All right, so then today we are going to go into some of the difficulties that we have with the book of Kings. And I put it that way for a reason. These are our difficulties with the book of Kings. There's nothing wrong with the book of Kings. There's things that are wrong with us, and there's reasons why we, in our context, have difficulties with the book of Kings. And I I put these into several categories. And the first one are some of the theological issues that we have with the book of Kings. And The first one I want to talk about, if you have that on the handout there in front of you, is what do we make of King Solomon? As far as, was Solomon a saved man or an unsaved man? Because he seems to be quite a confusing mixture of good and bad. And so, on the side of seeing Solomon as a saved man, remember that he wrote several books of the Bible. He wrote the book of Proverbs, he wrote the book of Song of Solomon, some of the Psalms are his, and so... That would seem to indicate that we're we're dealing with a regenerated, saved man here. And he wrote scripture. That's definitely an argument in his favor. However, on the flip side, as to why you might view Solomon as an unsaved man, go back to the book of Deuteronomy once again. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17, and I want to look at verses 14 and following, where we have laws concerning Israel's kings. Remember, when we were looking in Deuteronomy chapter 28, that God had anticipated that the people of Israel were going to have a king at some point in the future. And so God provides laws for the people of Israel for that future day, that when they have a king, this is how God wants the king to act and how not to act. So verse 14 and following, you can follow along in Deuteronomy 17. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say... I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. (laughs) That's exactly what they did. That's that's amazing, Uh, the prophecies that are in Scripture. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God 
by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now, the one thing that Solomon has going for him here in this context is that he's not a foreigner, okay? <laughs> Everything else, he went the exact opposite direction. He went back to Egypt and multiplied horses for himself. He multiplied many wives for himself who turned his heart away. When he sat on the throne, he didn't remember these commandments because God has to come to him at the end and take the kingdom away from his son because he was breaking the covenant with his God. So, when you look at Solomon's life, and you see, well, yeah, he started well, but you know, he did have David for a father, and everything was set up for him to succeed, and then he ended horribly. And so maybe we're dealing with a, a man who fell away from the Lord and, and is an apostate. Is he a backslider, or is he an apostate? That's the question that people have about Solomon. Now, my view on Solomon is that he was a backslider. I think that he was a saved man. I think Solomon will be with us in heaven but that he failed miserably as a king in all of the respects that we just read in the book of Deuteronomy. And that shows you that it's possible for a man to know the Lord, to love the Lord, and to start off very well, and then to completely lose touch with God's will. So I think that's, that's a, a lesson for us. So we need to be on our guard that we don't repeat the mistakes of Solomon starting well and ending poorly I think he's still saved, but his reward was definitely taken away, both in the Davidic covenant sense and also in the eternal uh, heavenly reward sense. He lost out on a lot of reward. The second theological issue that I'd like to briefly touch upon is the high places in Israel that are mentioned throughout the book of Kings and other of the former prophets. And there I'd like you to turn your attention, as it says on your handout, to 1 Kings chapter 3. So go back to 1 Kings chapter 3. Some people think that the book of Kings is somewhat ambiguous or even contradictory on its view of the high places in Israel. And one of the reasons why they say this is here in 1 Kings chapter 3 verses 2 through 4, God seems to honor the worship of Solomon on this high place. So I want to read that part and then discuss it a little bit with you. 1 Kings chapter 3, you see that he marries the Pharaoh's daughter, he brings her to the city of David, so on, and the people there are sacrificing in verse 2 at the high places. However, so this is a bad thing, the people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. So this verse seems to allow for some concession to the people of Israel that Though God didn't want them worshiping on the high places, the fact that they didn't have a temple in Jerusalem to worship at seems to somewhat excuse or ameliorate the guilt of the people in worshiping at the high places, which God had commanded them not to do. And you see then in verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord. Well, see, sounds like a saved man there. Walking in the statutes of David his father... Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So here, as you summarize Solomon's reign, he's a good king, he's like David. However, God says, I don't really like the fact that he's worshiping at the high places. And so even though there's some amelioration of the guilt in verse 2, it's still pointed out as something that God doesn't like in verse 3. But then you look at verse 4. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. And this is where he asks him, you know, ask for anything and I'll give it to you. Give him a blank check. And so the fact that God honors the sacrifices of Solomon at this greatest of the high places and makes this appearance to him and gives him this great blessing of whatever you want, it seems to indicate that God is okay with the worship at the high places. So you see how people get confused. They're like, is God okay with it? Is he not okay with it? What are we supposed to make of this worship at the high places? Well, I want you to come with me once again then back to Deuteronomy. God spoke about this in the law, not surprising. Deuteronomy chapter 12. So were the high places the worst thing that Israel ever did? Well, certainly not. Were they God's will? 
No, they were not. And this is similar to some of our ethical, moral issues coming up, like David and Solomon having many wives, and that's a moral issue that we have. And why isn't that more strongly condemned in the book of Kings and the Old Testament? Well, was having many wives the worst thing that people ever did? No. Was it God's will? No. And so, once again, you see that not all sins are equal in their severity or in how much God hates them, but all sin is to be avoided by those who truly love the Lord. Just because God hates one sin less than he hates another sin, he still hates it. And we who love God should be avoiding that sin with our whole heart. God is gracious and patient and allows us to still have a relationship with him, even when we do things that are less abominable to him than things that are more abominable. But that doesn't excuse us for doing those less abominable things. All right. So Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 2, again, it starts off with the normal way that God begins his commandments. These are the statutes and rules that you must be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the land, the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of their place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitations there, there you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings and so on. There you shall eat before the Lord. So at the very beginning, God said, don't worship where the people worship. The people, they, they build their high places and that's where they set up their altars and that's where they have their feasts and that's where they have their pagan worship. Don't do it there. Now, the people under David and Solomon, they got rid of the idols in Samuel. They chopped down the ashram. They got rid of the Baals. And the people of Israel were living largely idol-free in their public worship from town to town and city to city. However, they still worshipped the Lord there. They're like, yeah, we got rid of the idols, and now we're, we're consecrating this, and we're going to worship the Lord here. We're not going to worship the idols here. But God had said, don't worship me there. So they were only partially obedient. They got rid of the idols, but they worshipped the Lord on the high places. So was it as bad as worshipping idols on the high places? No. But was it what God told them to do? No. So the high places in the book of Kings, it's not ambiguous. It's not that God is confused or changing his mind. It's just that God tolerates this act of disobedience on behalf of the people their half-hearted obedience or their halfway obedience, and you know, half obedience is half disobedience, right? God tolerates it out of his grace and mercy. It's not that God can't make up his mind whether it's a good thing or not. So the critics will use a thing like this to try to tack the Bible as, as being contradictory, but they're just oversimplifying a complex situation. And there's other verses that are in the book of Deuteronomy or the law of Moses that say the same thing about destroying the high places which they failed to do. All right, so let's talk about some of the moral issues then that we have in the book of Kings. And let's, for that, start in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. And here in 1 Kings chapter 2, you've got David passing on the kingdom to Solomon. And on David's deathbed, so to speak, he's taking care of business, or he's telling Solomon how to take care of business that David has left undone. And some of the things that David says strike modern readers as iffy, questionable, morally speaking. So let's take a look at that in verses 5 through 9. So David's giving his final instructions to Solomon about what to do as the new king of Israel. And he says in verse 5, Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, and you can read about that in the book of Samuel, Second Samuel, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But... 
Deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom your father. And, pick it up now in verse 8, There is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what ought to be done to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. So the fact that David on his deathbed says, okay, I want you to kill this guy, and I want you to kill this guy, and you're wise, you'll figure out the best way to do it, that strikes modern readers as iffy, morally. Like, really? You know, this is what a good person does on his bed, says kill this guy and kill that guy? Well, you've got to remember that David is not just an ordinary citizen. David is a king. And as a king, it is David's job to administrate justice. Now, let's talk about the last one first here. Let's talk first about Shimei. So, if you recall, Shimei cursed David when he was on the run from his son Absalom during the revolt that his son Absalom was trying to overthrow David. And David recognized that this was part of God's judgment on him and his household because of the matter of Uriah the Hittite, whom he had killed with the sword to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba. And so David was humbling himself. You know, we're not going to kill Shimei because I am in a period where I need to be humbled. And so I'm going to allow him to curse God's king, which is not something you should do. Cursing the king is, is a capital offense. And, but David, at that time, swore that he wouldn't take any vengeance on him. He wouldn't bring justice, let me, say it, let me put it that way. He wouldn't bring justice down upon him that he deserved because David was submitting himself to the discipline of the Lord. But, just because personally David wanted to forgive him, as king, it is David's job to administrate justice. And if you let things like that go without punishment, then that sets a bad precedent and it leads to further ungodliness in Israel. And so as much as we love mercy, we have to also know when is the time for justice and to love justice in order that we allow for society to function well. Because if there's, if there's no justice, if it's all mercy, then people just do whatever they want and they take advantage of the situation. So as king, David recognizes this needs to be done. As a person, David had overlooked it. And so that's part of the the difficulties and complexities that are here that people often overlook. And they just look at it from a personal side. And they're like, well, it's wrong for David to go back on his mercy that he offered. And well, no, David's not just like you and I. It would be wrong for me to go back on my mercy because personally, we're supposed to forgive. But an authority, a governing authority, his job is justice, not forgiveness. And so it's important to recognize that David's role and where he's speaking here. He's speaking as a king to the next king. He's not speaking as a man to his son. Okay? And then that's the same thing with Joab. Joab, the son of Zariah, that he also needs to be dealt with. And David, for whatever reason, hadn't dealt with this, and David knows it's on his conscience. As a king, this needs to be handled, and so he appoints his son Solomon to take care of it, and you can read about how Solomon, in his wisdom, does handle each one of those situations very wisely as king. So the moral issue of David telling Solomon to kill people, it's only confusing if you're not clear on the fact that this is a kingly role and not a personal vendetta, okay? And then also, uh, another moral issue comes up in 1 Kings chapter 21. We'll just touch on this one briefly, because we've had similar situations come up in our study of the Old Testament. This is just one more example, so we don't have to go into a long explanation. So in 1 Kings 22, you've got Micaiah, the prophet, speaking to Ahab. And Ahab is wondering what to do, and he's seeking counsel, and the Lord wants to judge the house of Ahab. And so the Lord has a convocation in heaven as we pick it up there and uh, Micaiah is rehearsing this. We'll pick it up in verse 19 to get the context. Micaiah said, Therefore, O king, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the house of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. 
Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. And then Zedekiah, who's one of these false prophets, comes and strikes Micaiah and tells him he's a liar. A very interesting situation, and it raises the old ethical issue, the old ethical problem of, does God countenance or use lies for good purposes? That here we have this lying spirit that is sent from God, that God gives this lying spirit permission to go and accomplish something. And so this is a, a moral question about the character of God. Is it right for God to send a lying spirit? Is that then God participating or benefiting from this sinful act of lying? We who believe the Bible, we who believe in God, we recognize that obviously it's right for God to do what he does here, and then it's just up left for us to try to explain why it's the right thing for God to do or how God can use this lying spirit. Now, Lying in order to achieve something that you want to do is normally a sin. However, there are complex situations, like with Rahab's lie, where the scripture seems to countenance that and say that doesn't, at least doesn't condemn it. And then you have the situation with the women who were the midwives who lied to Pharaoh, at least it seems like a lie, that the Hebrew women would give birth before they were able to get there, and that's why they weren't killing the male babies. And so this, this lie in order to achieve some good end seems like there's some examples in Scripture where it's like, allowed? And here, God has an end that he wants to achieve, and God isn't the one who is lying, but he's using someone else who lies in order to achieve the end that God wants. And now, this might seem like a problem, but you have to recognize that if you have a problem with this, then you have a God who is not in control of history. You have a God who is not sovereign. Because every sinful thing that people do is used by God to ultimately accomplish his purposes. And not just this lie, but all lies, all murders, all idolatry, all evil that is done is ultimately used by God in order to bring about his ultimate purposes because God is sovereign over all, including the evil deeds that people do. And people who don't love God will look at that and say, well, then God is a moral monster, that God is evil if he uses evil in order to accomplish good. But here's the thing. God is not the source of any of this evil. God uses evil, but he doesn't cause that evil to happen. He's not the one who is leading these people to do evil. He didn't make the Spirit do this. He didn't come up with the idea for the Spirit to do this. The Spirit came up with the idea to be the lying spirit, and God just said, yeah, go do it, and I'll use it for my purposes. So allowing sin or using sin in order to accomplish something good is not sinful. That's very important that we understand that. Doesn't make the sin good. That's the other mistake people often make. They think, well, if God uses it for good, then it's good. And Paul has to contradict that in Romans. And he says, may it never be. And so just because God uses evil for good purposes doesn't mean that evil isn't evil. And it also doesn't mean that God is responsible for the evil. And you want to keep all of that clear in your heart and in your mind Otherwise, you'll never be able to make sense of God and life, good and evil. This is a very important issue, but we're not going to get into it too deeply today. I already spent more time on it than I intended. All right, number three. This is an interpretive issue. So we've talked about theological issues, talked about moral issues. Let's talk about an interpretive issue, and that's in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9. So take a look at 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9. God used Judas's betrayal of Jesus in order to accomplish everlasting salvation, and God predicted that Judas was going to betray Jesus, not only during Jesus' lifetime, but in the Old Testament. And so if it wasn't for Judas's evil, there'd be no salvation. So the, the issue of God using evil for good is a very important one at the very heart of the gospel as well. What you intended for evil, God brought good out of it, as we learn in Genesis. All right, so in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9, we have an interesting prayer request. And this is where Elisha is asking for the double portion. 
So when they'd crossed over the river, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Some people have misunderstood what this request is. When they hear a double portion, what they think is, like he's being greedy, he's asking for twice as much spiritual power as what Elijah had. And that's not what double portion means. It's not asking for twice as much as what Elijah had. But instead, in the Bible, you understand inheritance rights, that the firstborn, as it's described in Deuteronomy 21, verse 17, I think I have that on your handout. In Deuteronomy 21:17, it says that, you acknowledge the firstborn, even if you don't love him uh, as much, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. He is the first fruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. So when we're talking about a double portion, we're talking in the sense of inheritance rights. And an inheritance was divided up among someone's sons. And the firstborn got a double portion of the inheritance from the father according to God's law to administrate the land and keep the land in the family. Firstborn got the double portion. The others just got a single portion. So it's not that you're getting twice as much as what the father had. You're just getting a larger share of what the father had as the firstborn. Basically what Elisha is asking is to be the firstborn to receive a larger share of the prophetic spiritual ministry that Elijah has ministered. And so this is his inheritance, so to speak. So not a greedy request. It makes perfect sense in its context. Number four is a chronological issue. Let's take a look at that. As you see on your handout, if you add up the years of all the kings and their reigns in the book of Kings, it adds up to quite a bit more than the 350 years that was actually covered during that time period. And so people are like, well, there you have it. The Bible's in error again. And the way that people deal with this issue will really show their attitude towards the text. Are they hostile critics of the text? Or are they lovers of the text? And another place where your attitude is going to determine how you handle an issue like this. It reveals the heart. Now, when it comes to adding up the years and it being more than 350, well, one reason for this that's quite obvious is, is that a part of a year counts as a year. And so if a king dies, you know, so to speak, in our calendar in February that still counts as a year of his reign. And the next king taking over in February, well, that counts as a year for him as well. So you're going to get some overlap just that way. Not only is part of a year counted as a year, but also there would be co-regencies where a king would get very old and you know, should retire like many of our senators. And then you know, his son would take over for him while he was still alive. And so in one sense, the old king is still reigning, but in another sense, the new king has already begun to reign. So you'd have a co-regency and overlapping of their years. So the father reigned 35 years and the son reigned 32 years. Well, they had three years of overlap, so it's really just you know, 64 years or whatever. So that explains part of it as well. Now, it gets even more complicated. It's one of the most complex issues in Old Testament studies. And there's been some amazing research and, and work done on this. Because when you actually get into the weeds on this issue, and we're not, but I'm just going to give you just a little hint of, of what is in those weeds, that the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom had different calendars. They kept track of years differently. And so when does a year begin according to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom? It gets pretty complicated, and um, amazing work has been done on that, and it's been satisfactory for those who love the scriptures to get the chronology sorted out. But it does get quite complex. The work has been good enough that it has convinced a lot of unbelieving scholars that the Bible's generally reliable in this area, and it's convinced all believing scholars that the Bible is reliable in this area. But even convinced some of the skeptics, that's how much good work has been done on this. All right, number five, the source-critical issue. We're going to skip this one. It's uh, just a question of which came first. Did Isaiah's account of the siege of Jerusalem in Isaiah 36 through 38 come first, 
or did the account in 2 Kings, did the author of 2 Kings use Isaiah's account, or did Isaiah use the same records that the author of Kings? All that, we don't really know. It's just an interesting issue, and people have their different viewpoints and theories as to which came first, Isaiah's account of that or the account in 2 Kings 18 through 20. But let's go on to the text-critical issue here so we can finish up. There are some scribal errors in the numbers, and this isn't the problem with the original text. It's a problem with the text that has been handed down to us. For an example, in Second Chronicles 22, we are told when Ahaziah began to reign, and it's different from what we have in Second Kings chapter 8, verse 26, and one of them is obviously an error, and the other one is right. And what's really remarkable about this is that with such an obvious error, it wasn't corrected by the Jewish scribes who were passing down the scriptures as they received them. It would have been a great temptation for them to say, well, obviously this one is an error, let's fix it. But they took their job so seriously that they didn't even change the errors. Like, if that's what we're receiving, that's what we're passing on. We're not making any changes to the text. So this is actually evidence in support of the reliability of the manuscripts that were passed down by the Masoretes, that they didn't fix these errors that had happened before the Masoretes got them. And then another example is in 1 Kings. It's an error on 40,000 stalls of horses that the kings had. Second Chronicles has the correct number, 4,000 stalls. Numbers in Hebrew are very easy to mess up according to the way that they wrote numbers. And so you do find some scribal errors on numbers in the book of Kings. Just want you to be aware of that. If somebody comes along at some point and says, you can't trust the Bible because it's got errors. Well, we do have errors in the transmission of the text, but there's no errors in the original text. And the errors that do show up in the transmission of the text, we're able to know about, we're able to identify as errors so that we can know what God's message was originally. So there's no problem there for us who believe in the inspiration of the original scriptures and that God has preserved that even through the errors because we know where the errors are. So the final word I want to leave you here with this morning is the importance of ending well. That's number one. Solomon had a great start and he did not end well. And so be careful who you marry because who you marry can have a big influence on how well you do in the rest of your life. Solomon was not careful with who he married, and it didn't go well for him. So you want to end well and not be like Solomon. But also, we see in the book of Kings, the importance of starting well. Jeroboam gave the northern kingdom a bad start by building the golden calves, and they never departed from the sins of Jeroboam, and it led to their destruction. So you want to start well, you want to end well. There's warnings there in both Solomon and Jeroboam. And then uh, finally, just the thought that people are sheep and we need good leadership. And the good leadership that we have is not me. The good leadership is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. We are sheep. We need to follow our good shepherd. If we don't, we're going to have lots of problems. So we're sheep. People need a shepherd. Jesus is our shepherd.